0: Welcome to Life on the Other Side, stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption with Alec Klein. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. This is part two of the podcast with Dave Woodward who was convicted of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison before he was later released on probation.
1: There was a lot of, of thinking that went into our marriage. Sounds both practical, uh, but, but but more than that. I mean, you said you loved each other. Was, I mean, there was more to it because we were in love. but the basis of it was Brett Keller. It was... She was willing to take on another marriage, and so was I, just to make sure that, you know, I didn't end up on Tucker Wood Hill. And that was huge to me, it made me love her even more. One of the remarkable things about Lynn, and there are many of them, is that she devoted much of her life to trying to help you regain your freedom. Tell me, tell me about that. How did you all work that? Uh, there's only so much that you can do from inside, and you know I was doing doing what I could do, and this most of what she did was was done before my sentence modification. No, I, I actually not because she did more afterwards. But a lot of what she did was before my sentence modification. So it's you know she could do some research for me that I couldn't do. Um, she could make connections that there's no way that I could make, um, and. So she started, even with me not ever being able to get out of prison, she started paving the road that led to me getting out of prison. Let me ask you this, Dave. When you first were sentenced and went in, did you ever think you were going to get out? No. No, I I did 18 years waking up every morning knowing I was going to die in prison. I can't imagine what that must feel like. Well, if it hadn't been for Lynn, I probably would have taken my own life early on. You know, it's it came it did it came to the point where I could function in there. It's not the world, but there was a society there. I had friends, and and so towards towards the end, before I got uh, released, it's not that I couldn't have done it. It's not what I wanted. Um, suicide didn't cross my mind quite as much. People. People didn't like the idea that you know if you ask me I'm going to tell you it's an option. You know when I get sick of this stuff I can check out anytime I want. They can try and stop me but they won't. And and so uh, yeah I I knew I was going to die in prison and even after I got my life sentence Oklahoma's not a state to let lifers out. You've got to know people you've got to have connections. It really your record in there doesn't matter. They they make the step so intricate that unless you've got some sort of support, a lifer, especially a lifer who's got no family there, uh, no real plan, uh, it's it's difficult to get the majority of five votes twice and then get a governor's signature. It just very rarely happens. So even after I got my sentence modified, which, when we were in negotiations, I had asked for. I, I told him, I said, I'm going to give you the first degree murder. I'll even sign for the life sentence, but I want it split—twenty-five in and suspend the rest—which would have, you know, would have been twenty-five years. When we, when we were at trial, I took the stand and I told the jury, I did this. You know, I can see doing twenty or twenty-five years for it. I said, but you know, I don't know that I deserve to die for it. Um, in the end, when I walked out the door, it was twenty-five years, seven months, and change. Well, well so, before we before before we go there, so are, are you telling me that basically the only thing that kept you going while you were on the inside was was Lynn? She was she was ninety percent of it. Yeah. What was the rest? Family, which most of my family I hadn't seen for thirty years. Um. And there was a modicum of respect that, that I was being granted by both inmates and staff, which is a tough line to, to walk. Um, that made me feel good because, you know, I may be wearing gray or orange or whatever I was wearing at the time, but people are still recognizing that I'm not—I'm I'm not the guy that committed the crime. I mean, I am, but I'm not the same guy. I had changed. And people were recognizing that. And I think I think that kept me alive a lot, too, just knowing people trusted me. I worked inside admin for five years, and I'm down there with deputy wardens and case managers, and, and they trusted me to go in, even when they weren't there, to wax floors or whatever, their office is wide open. They trusted me to go in and do my job and come back out. They trusted me to go in there. And the first thing when I was hired, I didn't want the job. I didn't want to be working around staff. And uh, when I met with the, the deputy warden that hired me, he was he was an ex marine, and I had hair down to the back, of the middle of my back. And I went down there with my hair all the way down. I, I did not want him to hire me. And so we're talking, and he, he said that you know, one of my case managers, who actually was the guard that gave me my first write up, her and another mental health worker had suggested me. And he's like, I really need somebody down here. And I told him, I said, Well, we'll have to come to an agreement. I said, You can never ask me anything that goes on the yard. I said, I don't care what it is. I I can't be put in that position. He said, Fair enough. He said, You don't take anything that you see, hear, or witness in inside admin out to the yard. And I said, Okay, we can we can see if this'll work. And it worked very well. They treated me well and, and I busted my butt for them. Dave, let me ask you this. You said that uh, certain things got you through. What, what about faith? Did faith play any part in your journey in prison? Faith was was huge. Um, God's the only one that got me. I mean, Lynn, Lynn had her, she she did all the legwork, but there's no other reason that I walked out those prison doors and God and faith did get me through. Lynn taught me how to embrace that faith. Um, she taught me, you know, I was raised Episcopalian, so I know the rights and everything else. But she can do that stuff by rote, and you just don't feel it. Then help lead me through what brings you to saying that. Instead of just saying the words, listen to what you're saying. Listen to, think about who you're talking to when you're saying it. And so no faith, I always consider that just a part of it. As far as percentages go, I mean, you know, I don't know that you can ever give enough percentage to God.
0: What were the words that you were hearing? What were the words that you were saying that actually meant something
1: in terms of your faith? Well, I mean, just take the Lord's Prayer or take uh, the confession of sin. Um, and that's one of the things I like about the Episcopal Church is that you have those things, and when you can't come up with them yourself, there are some words that you can say that, that, that are going to find your meaning. Um, the whole Book of Common Prayer you know, I read through it. I did I did one Easter in DU on that dirty UA. And I had one of the most profound religious experiences of my life. I mean, I felt God. I saw him. I, I, he, he was there with me. Um, my faith was strong inside and my faith is strong outside. You know, I, I do know, I recognize and realize the fact that this is a God thing. So Dave,
0: how in the world did you go from a life without parole sentence
1: where you knew you were
0: gonna die in prison
1: to actually getting out of prison? Tell tell me about that. That's a remarkable fact. Well, it's remarkable, but I think I think that was I think that way was kind of paved also. I had uh, I had a puppet defender going to trial and Barry Albert, who is passed now, and his son Johnny and people can complain about public defenders all they want, but those those guys worked very hard for me. And we all knew I was going to get convicted. They were trying to keep me off death row. They made me not testify. That was the one point I wouldn't break on. It's like at this point I don't care. At that point I I had almost hoped they'd give me the death penalty so it would be done and over.
0: Um,
1: but I think what was what was left in the trial that that. Ended up getting both of our sentences modified were things that my my attorney didn't argue for, and I think he didn't argue for them because he knew that at some point that would give me at least something to file on. So when when she got her sentence overturned in two thousand one, I don't think I even because I don't follow her story anymore. It, it's just I struggled sure. with with my thoughts and feelings about it. You're talking and, about your co uh, defendant, yes. But Lynn had hired an attorney. The attorney came up, you know, we got all new transcripts, we got everything, sent it to his office. And about six months later, he came up and he said, you know, I've been through your stuff with a fine-tooth comb and I just can't find anything. He said, we're just going to have to wait for the laws to change and see what happens. And so, bang, I'm back doing life without parole and, and I'm not really thinking anything of it because it's what I've been doing well, I went from inside administration to the law library. I became a law clerk. I became a paralegal, um, which is not my forte, and that's why I don't pursue it now. But it was, you know, it was more education. It was more something. And I didn't really do it planning to work on my own case because a lawyer had just told me, you got nothing coming. Luckily, one of the Inmates that worked with me, Bill Wanless, and I'll throw his name out anytime because he's a big part of this. He said, "Well, you know, what have you got?" I said, "I have my appeal here." He said, "Let me see it." So he took my appeal and then he pulled up my pro-defendant's appeal and he looked at them both and he said, "Well, she got this. Why didn't why didn't you get this?" I said, "I don't know." He said, "You yeah, had the same judge, the same jury." Same. He said, "That's reversible error," and he's the one that talked me into filing the post-conviction. And that was the beginning of it. That was how I got it switched from life without to life. It was a technical error in the courts that I, I truly believe my public defender left there for me.
0: So there you were, instead of having
1: life without parole, you had life with the possibility of parole. But that's still a long way, as you pointed out, from freedom. So how did that happen? How did, how, I, don't, I don't understand the question. Well, how'd you, how did you uh, ultimately. Get the parole that you got. I really didn't. I didn't change any of my behaviors. I continued doing what I was doing. Now I, I took a little more schooling, took a little more college, um, and be kind of became kind of more active and less active in the community. There were some things that I was accustomed to doing, like being on city council, uh, doing stuff like that, that I pulled away from because I didn't want to be that much in the limelight. But there are other things that I continued doing that I knew that, you know, whether they helped me or not, they, I'd go over and work on MHU. I'd help the guys write letters that weren't locked down. I'd do stuff that was recognizable. Um, but at that point, as I said, you talk to almost any lifer that's in the Oklahoma penal system, and they're going to tell you, you know, my chances of ever getting out are less than 10%. So you still even with a life sentence, you're still kind of in the back of your head thinking, I'm going to die in prison. And every time you come up for parole, it's, it's, you, you get excited, but you know what's coming at the end of it. You know you're going to go back to your cell and you're going to cry and you're going to you know, wonder, what can I do? And there's only so much you can do. Um, the, the stuff that Lynn did on the outside was probably more than I did on the inside. Um, she got contact. She she introduced me to people, whether they ever met me or not. She brought my name out, brought my case out, said, you know, this is, somebody needs to look at him. And, you know, I went up for parole three times. It was the third time I made it. So, so two times, this didn't do any good. But the last time, we actually had some support. And... Um, I was probably ahead of the story. Um, but that that was, I just kept doing what I was doing. Um, I, knew, I knew in my heart that, that who I was, not that I deserved to get out, but if they were going to let anybody out, I was going to be one of their better chances at success. And I just had to pray that eventually somebody would recognize it. And the key was, Dave, what was the key in that? Successful parole Uh, timing and and a politician who actually kept one promise that he made to his constituents. Um, The 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 context that we had made, they were ready to go in guns blazing if I got denied. Of course, they couldn't have done anything at at first stage or second stage. But if I'd made it to the governors, if he had denied me, they were ready to go in there and and say, "Why'd you do this?" The parole board that i ended up going in front of the man who prosecuted me uh his son was on that board um it had a d.a it had a victim it had it was basically a a stacked board and i had gotten two votes the previous two times well two votes the first time i got no votes the second time um the third time I managed to get four out of five votes from that parole board. He was the only holdout, and so that brought me to second stage where I made a personal appearance. Um, One of the people on the parole board knew my story, Adam Luck, and though he could not take sides, and I don't know whether it would have been borderline whether he needed to recuse himself, but. So that was an ally, although he was still, you know, he was was in the system enough to where you don't really expect nothing. In the end, I went in front of the the five-person parole board for personal appearance, and I got all five votes. Wow. Uh, Somebody had looked at what I did or heard something, but they decided, okay, whether it was we think he should get out or whether it was we're going to leave it on the governor, I don't know, but they passed me on. When did the governor sign the order releasing you? This is a very interesting story here because I came up at the end of the year. My my, parole, my first parole date was in October, and I should have come up for a personal appearance in November. Well, they were having issues with the parole board, and so you know, I was put off a month. I didn't go up until December. By the time I came up for my personal appearance, Mary Fallon, who had never signed I don't think she'd ever signed a lifer. Nobody expected her to. All of a sudden, she signed like four or five lifers. And they're getting ready to change offices, and all I can think is I want on her desk. You know, I I was sure she was going to sign my parole. And by the time we made enough calls and got in touch with her office, we were told she's done signing anything. It's going to be on the new governor. And so you've got a brand new governor coming in um, who's not seen any role cases, but he had told his constituents that if I get elected, if the board sends them to me, unless there's something that stands out, he said, I'm going to sign them. How many politicians actually stand by what they say when they get in office? If I wasn't the first murderer that hit his desk, I was within one or two. And all I could think is, this guy's never going to sign this. He's never going to take a chance on that. And uh, he came out and, and stood by his word and signed it. And you know, I, got, I don't know the man, I don't know his his background, but I've got all the respect in the world for doing what you said you were going to do. And yeah, a lot of that's because I'm sitting out here because of that. But um, it was it was a hopeful, joyful, scary time. Making it by first stage. You know, that that gives you an upbeat lift and you feel good, but you still got that dread in the back of your head. When I went up for the personal appearance, the inmate has to step out while the, the panel makes their decision. And so I'm standing out against the wall, and I, when they were done voting, the parole investigator turned around and looked at me and shook his head, and I thought I was going to Uh I had my best friend, James, and... My priest, Father Rick, one on each side of me, and neither one of them thought I was going to make it. This is a man of the cloth and somebody who truly believed in me, but we all knew the system. I wasn't going to make it. And so I come out, and and they're not supposed to give you this information, but I did have enough enough respect from the staff where sometimes you get a few perks, and one of the perks was the, the case manager coordinator who got outside the door, and I said, so can you tell me how many votes I got? She said, you got three. And so I was I was overjoyed with that. I called Lynn later that evening, and, and I said, so, you know, who didn't, vo- who, who didn't vote for me? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I got three votes. Who were the two? No, because I dropped one at that point. Now, I'd gotten four the first time. Now I'm only getting three. She said, you didn't get three votes. She said, you got all five. It It was amazing. And once the governor signed, it kind of became a whirlwind because nobody expected him to sign. And so nothing had been done that was supposed to be done. And at the end of it, they had like 10 minutes to get me off the yard before I could have filed in, uh, uh, for having me incarcerated wrongly because if I was on parole, I should have been out the gate. So they were busy pushing me out the door. Um, so I had very little time to really process the fact that I was going to get out.
0: After how many years, Dave? 25,
1: 25 years, seven months, and I think it was 14 or 16 days, something like that. Wow. Quarter century, a quarter, of almost half my life. It must have been just it, overwhelming. It it really was. Luckily, doing what I was doing in there, I was I I didn't watch the news and stuff like that, but I stayed abreast of enough of what was going on. And my job for the last five years was working with computers, and so I wasn't really afraid of the technology coming out, but you know, the world changes a lot in 25 years. That's for sure. Tell me, Dave, what's it been like once you, now that you're out, what's, what's life like on the other side? It's it's almost a little scary because I transitioned almost seamlessly. Um, I got out and I was, it was kind of, it was kind of a little hairy getting out because when I, like I said, everything was rushed to get me through the gate. Um, they handed me a little post-it with my parole off. This was all interstate compact. The whole plan was I was getting out, I was coming home. I was coming to home, at home to live with my stepdad and to work at where I work, the Bottle Redemption Center. And that's a big part of how I got out. It, it's when you're 55 years old and you, you can go to to people and say, I have a job, I have a home, I have a community that supports me. That that does make a big difference in their decision. Um uh, but I got out, and all they did, they handed me a post and said, oh, you got to call this guy. So I went, and I took care of some stuff at the courthouse, and I met, you know, Lynn family, which, you know, I'd been conversing with most of them for almost the entire time I was at Joe Harb. So I knew them all, but I'd never met them. So we're doing dinners, and we're, we're, you know, and I'm trying to get in touch with my parole officer up here. Well, He's only in his office on Tuesdays, so... You know, I'm leaving messages, I'm leaving messages. And he finally calls me and he says, where are you? I said, I'm in Oklahoma. He said, you were supposed to leave as soon as you walked out the gate. And so I told him, I said, because the plan was to drive out here. I told him, I said, well, James was sick. I said, one of my drivers is sick. I said, so we're trying to put things together. He said, how soon can you be here? I said, well, you know. I can fly, but in order to do that, I'm going to have to get an identification card, and that's probably going to take weeks. He said, when can you get here? I said, I can be here by Friday. And so we left and got here, and he said, call me when you cross state lines. So I did. I called him when I crossed every state line we went there. When he finally did meet, meet me, he said, good, you can finally stop blowing up my phone. Um, <laughs> but it's, I was given... No sort of reentry process. I was not, you know. They didn't try to help me at all. For lifers, it, it's they're not going to invest the time and the effort into trying to re assimilate you into society if they don't think there's a chance you're going to get out, and, and clearly they didn't. What, what was the, what's been the hardest thing on the outside since you've been out? Um. Really, not much. I mean I've I've had a death in my family and dealt with a few things like that, but as far as the the reentry and my family has had my back a thousand percent. They've been behind me the whole way. Uh you know, I got home. I got well, what about Lynn? My though? dad. Um he gave me my first vehicle, helped he didn't do things for he he helped push me towards doing what I needed to do. I you know, I got my vehicle registered, I got my vehicle
0: uh Dave. But what about Lynn? I I understand that Lynn, that came to an end.
1: The, this is the the story gets tougher from there because we had divorced in two thousand eleven, even though she was still on my side and still doing the legwork, it was we, we went through a bad patch and we got divorced. She's the one that drove me out here by herself. You know, um, she stayed for a couple of weeks, and then she left. And so I started, you know, doing what I need to do to, to slide back into society. And then about a month later, she came back with a plan to stay three weeks. And at that point, I was still trying to find my own feet. And I I, I didn't, I wasn't there um, emotionally. And I don't know if Lynn was, I think, you know, she was really hoping that I'd give it a little more of a shot than I did, but it, it came to a point where we just sat down and talked, and I was like, Glenn, you know, you're not going to leave Oklahoma. I'm not going to leave Maine. We, this isn't something that can be done. Uh, it's, you know, There's long-distance relationships, and there's something that's futile. And, and
0: with neither one of
1: us willing or able to, to relocate to the other place, um, what kind of relationship is that? So I, I think I thought it was only fair to have that talk with her so that she can carry on with the rest of her life and, and I can do what I need to do to carry on with mine. Um, she's she's still in my corner, you know. She's she's the ones, She's the one that finds these interviews for me. You know, when I came out, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I'm doing right now with you is what I wanted to do when I came out because I felt like people need to know. And the first thing I did was a live Facebook feed with Cure, and the families hated it. They, 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 The families of the inmates, and most every one of them hated it. You know, they wanted to know the magic button. What did I do to, you know, what button did I push to get out? And it, it wasn't a button. It was hard work. It was, I had already been, I had friend requests from two people inside the prison. One was a best friend of mine, and one was another guy. And I blocked him immediately. It's like, really, you're gonna you're gonna put my freedom at risk. And so when I took when I did the live Facebook feed, what I said. I said if you want to get out, I said you got to do the legwork. You go in there, you obey the rules. You you do what you're told. You keep your level. You get education. You don't have a cell phone. You don't smoke the dope. You don't gamble. You don't play with boys. You you do what you have to do. And they. You know, they wanted the easy way out, and there is no way, easy way out of prison. Dave, let me ask you one last question: Is this right? You work at a redemption center. Is that literally true? Yes. Uh, and, and redemption here in May, we have a bottle and can deposit. So when you go okay. to the store, you buy you buy a six pack of Coke, where you're you're paying five cents on every bottle and can that that is in the six pack. And then when you're done, you take your bottles and cans to our redemption center. And we exchange them for cash. It kind of keeps the litter off the road. But here we are. You're you're uh, working at the redemption center. Sounds sounds fitting. It's it's a good job. It's not you know. None of us are going to get rich doing it, but it's a family business. I work for my dad and my sister. Um, you know, sometimes we have business, sometimes we don't. This, this coronavirus has really been tough on everybody. Um. But, even when I can't get the hours to work, and you know I have the support of my family uh, i you know medically, I have some medical uh issues that I need to take care of, and I stay low enough under the the income level, which you know not what I try to do, but I've gotten help from the state for for my medications. they actually paid for hep C treatment. You know, they paid forty thousand dollars for eight weeks worth of treatment to cure the Hep C that I had. So the the state of Maine's been been pretty good about helping me out too. Well, Dave, I, I want to thank you uh, for sharing your story. It's it's really a, a remarkable story. Uh, not many people, as you as you know, go from life without possibility of parole to regaining their freedom. No, I, I am definitely a rare breed. Um, I thank you for taking the interest because, you know, like I said, this is what I want to do. I want people to know this story because it's not just a story of me getting out of it, but it's a story of people can change. And mm-hmm. Absolutely. People outside, for the people inside, what I had always hoped to, to, the, to portray to them is the fact that it doesn't matter how far down you get. You know, I was at rock bottom. I was facing the death penalty, and there was my life was over. And had I given up hope, my life would have been over. And that, that's my message, is just don't give up hope, just work harder. And, and you know, if it happens, it was meant to. And and But you've got to always believe that it's meant to. Well, I think that's a beautiful point, hope.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over, by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned for our next podcast involving stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. And please subscribe to the Life on the Other Side podcast on iTunes.